1: This is
2: the Lawfare Archive.
3: I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for May 14th, 2022. Lawfare recently announced its new podcast series entitled Allies. The series from Lawfare's Bryce Clem and the team at Goat Rodeo DC tells the 20-year story of how the U.S. failed its eyes and ears, its translators, interpreters, and other local partners that were on the ground in Afghanistan. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from April 2021. In the episode, Bryce Clem is joined by Thomas Gibbons Neff and Medea Ofsel to discuss President Biden's decision to withdraw American military personnel from Afghanistan. They spoke about the situation on the ground in Afghanistan prior to U.S. withdrawal and the broader implications of Biden's decision. But first, here's a trailer for Allies, which premieres Monday, May 16, 2022. You can subscribe to Allies at a link in the episode description.
2: The withdrawal from Afghanistan ended in chaos at an airfield in Kabul. But despite the efforts of veterans, lawmakers, and senior leaders in the military, even more were left behind. To move
1: my family from location to location. Three
2: times.
3: He was just banging his head against the wall trying to figure out how do I unstick um, this?
1: The problem was not the idea. The problem wasn't the legislation.
2: The problem was the execution. The Taliban knew all this. That's why they used to shoot at them first. Why is it so hard to track the number of interpreters, translators, and contractors killed as opposed to U.S. soldiers? Because no one wants to know the number. Our story takes you from the front lines of the war to the halls of Congress to find out how did this happen. From Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, this is Allies, a podcast about how the U.S. government failed the Afghan translators, interpreters, and partners who fought alongside the U.S. Coming this May. I'm Bryce Clem, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 16th, 2021. On Wednesday, President Biden announced a full withdrawal of all U.S. military personnel from Afghanistan by September 11, 2021. The withdrawal announcement comes as the U.S. and Afghan governments have been trying to reach a power sharing agreement with the Taliban. Negotiations began in September 2020 because of an agreement reached in February 2020 when the Trump administration made an initial deal with the Taliban. That deal said that the U.S. would withdraw by May 1st, 2021. A lot has happened since that February deal, and to help us make sense of it all, I first spoke with Thomas Gibbons Neff, a New York Times correspondent based in the Kabul Bureau and former Marine infantryman. Thomas walked us through the situation on the ground in Afghanistan since that February agreement. Following Biden's announcement, I spoke with Medea Afzal the David M. Rubenstein Fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution, to go through the broader implications of a U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Quick note, I recorded the interview with Thomas Gibbons-Neff before President Biden's withdrawal announcement. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 16th. Biden announces a military withdrawal from Afghanistan. Great, Thomas, thank you so much for joining me. Before we get into sort of the more recent uh, negotiations, I think it, it's really important to discuss the terms of the February 2020 deal that the U.S. made with the Taliban and how that tracks to the current situation in Afghanistan. So if you could just sort of walk us through the conditions of that deal and to what extent, at least in the past year plus, the parties have lived up to their commitments in that deal.
1: Right. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for having me. So, you know, basically the February 29th, 2020, it's called the Doha deal kind of set the stage for where we are now. And, you know, the the big points of that deal, right, was that there would be a U.S. withdrawal by May 1st of this year, right, and that, you know, given a prisoner release and a commitment to basically start negotiations between the Taliban and the Afghan government would, would follow. And kind of what happened afterward, there was a, a delay in the prisoner release. So that kind of moved things down the road a bit. And when finally 5,000 Taliban prisoners were released after much haranguing between the U.S. and the, the Afghan government, the, the Ghani administration in September of last year, uh, intra-Afghan negotiations began in in Doha. And those have kind of crawled along. There were some, some issues about the preface of the deal, kind of what would be discussed and how it would be laid out in December, and that was resolved. And now we're kind of here, and this, this, there's still been negotiations between the Afghan negotiators and the Taliban negotiators, but the needle really hasn't moved too much to the right. So the new, the new administration came in, basically set some conditions down or sent a letter to, to President Ghani, and and basically set us up to to where we are now as as these these approaching istanbul talks if they happen today the taliban said they were not go to istanbul on the 16th but that doesn't mean they won't go in the, in the days afterwards.
2: yeah yeah so i just want to return to to what happened in the aftermath of the doha deal and just sort of how did that change if at all the level of violence on the ground in
1: afghanistan Right. So, I mean, before the the Doha deal was signed, uh, Zelma Kloza, the U.S. peace envoy, you know, had wanted some type of ceasefire written into the deal. And the best that he got was this week long, quote unquote, reduction in violence that led up to the deal where, you know, it wasn't a ceasefire, but there was a sharp decline in, in incidents up to the February 29th signing. And while not explicitly written in the deal, there was hopes that there would be a drop off similar to the the week long reduction of violence before the deal was signed afterward but that that didn't happen i mean, I guess if you look at the the u n statistics from twenty twenty you know the amount of civilian casualties did drop by fifteen percent compared to twenty nineteen and I think below ten thousand. Uh, which was a first since 2013. So you could you could say, hey, listen, like, you know, the Taliban could say, yeah, we've reduced violence over the last year. But in reality, the violence kind of changed, right? In the, in the February 2020 deal, you had these, the class quote-unquote classified annexes were basically sections that, as it's been explained to me by several people were more general guidelines on what both sides basically shouldn't do, right? So the Taliban shouldn't attack district centers. The Americans wouldn't conduct drone strikes. Uh, There would be no offensive operations on either side, whether that was the Afghan-American NATO or the Taliban. And what the Americans will accuse the Taliban of doing is kind of navigating in the gray area of that deal. And what you see really uh, the Americans point to is the most concrete example of that. Of them navigating that area is the targeted assassination campaign that's kind of been going on for now over a year
2: right right and i I wanted to you did you did some some reporting on that, so I was wondering you know nobody's claimed responsibility for these targeted killings in Afghanistan, but a lot of people believe the Taliban are responsible, so who is being targeted in these killings and and why do you think whoever's doing them most likely the taliban is is doing them?
1: Right so I think the US came out in the last few months and kind of it was the first time they said directly that the Taliban were behind most of these attacks the Taliban obviously have denied it but the the targets you know go from religious scholars to civil society members to soldiers and police doctors judges you know civil civil society I think is the best way to to kind of characterize it so you can never say all of these attacks are by the Taliban, even though they go unclaimed, right? You know, there are people operating, again, in that gray space, taking advantage of the chaos, maybe, you know, settling deals, you know, settling disputes, tribal issues, family issues. We had wrote, written about, I think, something in, in Gore province where you know, a journalist had information about a provincial council member, and that provincial council member had that journalist killed. And you know, they, again, there's just a lot of a lot of gray area where these kind of attacks can happen as well. So, you know, you can look at it as a couple of things, right? It's it's a, especially in Kabul, it gets a lot of, a lot of attention, a lot of news coverage, and, you know, the Taliban use that to their advantage, whether it be you know propaganda or, or pushing this message that. You know, the government can't even protect its people in the capital, right? That that kind of serves well. And then again, it's also, it's a way to show their relevance, say, you know, the Taliban think that they're, you know, agreeing to these conditions in the classified annexes. And then they use this type of violence instead of, you know, massive car bomb attacks in the district centers or trying to capture Kundus, And instead kind of, sow this, this, Creeping fear across the country, right? Because it's not just in Kabul; it's in it's in other cities and towns across the country.
2: Yeah, I, I want to uh, just return for our listeners who might not who might not have been following the reporting on the classified annexes. So these these were a part of the February 2020 deal, as you as you mentioned. What's really strange about them is that they were classified through official channels to the American public, but you know the Taliban were party to the deal, so they had access to them. I'm just wondering, sort of in in your view and your reporting, what was so important about these annexes to keep them classified from the American public, but not the Taliban?
1: Yeah, I mean I think that's a question that, that that everybody has. I mean I think it has to a lot to do with how the Americans will withdraw, you know, these these ideas of, you know, reducing violence or putting guidelines in place and how the parties of the conflict will conduct themselves over the the duration of the deal or what have you. So, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of a mystery to me, um, whether it was part of the negotiations where this wouldn't be publicized or not, but that's just kind of where it stands. I mean, the Taliban has, has access to it and kind of could use that to their advantage. And I think in the end, especially when it comes to these restrictions on violence, right, whether, you know, no suicide bombings, no drone strikes, no raids, no offensives, you can kind of define it how you want or accuse the other of a violation, other side of a violation when it could be one way or, interpreted one way or another.
2: Right. And uh, I want to move for a second and talk about the U.S. relationship with the Afghan government and, you know, supposed to be very close allies. But I was wondering if you could just sort of walk us through some of the key differences in their view on what a negotiated settlement would look like.
1: Right, I mean, I think I think that that kind of plays out every day, you know, to separate yourself from President Ghani's administration and the palace, and then the kind of political power holders, whether that's Hekmatar, whether that's Jaimat, you know, whether that's you know, Dostum's party. You, know, you have so many people kind of around in the political sphere that has. Push and pull, or, or at least think they do, when it comes to you know, what what a negotiated settlement will look like. So, in turn, you have, I think, I've heard more than thirty uh, different types of you know, peace plans that have been circulated that the um, High Council that Abdullah Abdullah leads has to go through before they put any plan forward. You know, in the in the assemble negotiations. So, I mean, I think the Americans have a concrete idea of what they'd hope, hope to get out of Turkey, or out of the talks or whatever comes out of Doha and Turkey together. But again, you know, President Ghani has has his own peace plan and his own perception of of what a negotiated settlement will look like. And at the end of the day, he just, I think it comes down to being on the Americans timeline, which he obviously does not want to be.
2: Right, and you and you mentioned uh, Secretary of State Blinken's letter to Ghani. I was wondering if you could just walk us through, you know, what was in that letter and how was it received within the Afghan government.
1: Right. I mean, in that letter, you could kind of argue what the tone was. I mean, it was definitely harsh, and that you know the the palace, Ghani's palace, did not expect that tone from Secretary Blinken. You know, and the fact that they thought that maybe Khalilazad had written it because there's some animosity between Ghani and Kholozad and Blinken was detached from the process and and just kind of gave Khalozad free reign to kind of get what you know he thought should be pushed pushed across the plate, you know, as we get closer to to May first. But basically it, it outlined their idea of you know a interim government or a you know a peace plan that would involve all parts parts of society. And, you know, a reduction of violence that could lead to a ceasefire. And as it it was explained to me, there was this idea, that hey, the U.S. is putting this together. It's not something that they think the Afghans should adhere to, to the letter. It's just, you know, there wasn't much movement in Doha. So here's this plan that can be discussed between, you know, the Taliban and the Afghan negotiators and the political parties in Kabul. Right. It was just trying to throw something at the wall to see what could come. Come out of it, and you know, in in reality, I think President Ghani took it as a as a slight, just because of the tone of the letter, who was who was mentioned in it, Karzai, the former president, and so yeah, it it definitely kind of the honeymoon phase of oh well, the the Trump administration's left, the Biden administration's here, we can you know we can see eye to eye on things, you know they'll understand where we're coming from, was kind of I don't want to say shattered, that's a little dramatic, but definitely tainted
2: right i mean there's been some reporting on how a lot of people are upset with president ghani and the the way that he's conducted himself with the peace talks uh i mean in doha he there was some a diplomatic holdup about the the basic you know name of the afghan government that would be referred to in official documents what leverage does does ghani and the afghan government have really left in in your view in these negotiations
1: I mean, I think I think there's a bunch of perspectives when it comes to, to to Ghani's leverage, right? There's this idea that you know if you were to put an interim government in place, the country would be more destabilized than it is already, given given the violence and and the pending withdrawal date of you know American and NATO forces. But you know, it, it's just kind of he's the president. He has a relationship with the U.S. You know, there's the Afghan security forces that are. For now, a reliable counterterrorism partner for the U.S. And you know, part of the Doha deal is the further release of Taliban prisoners. And While it's not written in there as a definitive term, it is a goal that the Americans are supposed to aspire to and ideally commit to, as well as, well as you know, taking the Taliban off the United Nations sanctions list. I mean, it, it'll be up to Ghani if those those prisoners are released. But at the same time, he is the president of the country. And I mean, I think mean, that's enough leverage for him for now. I mean, it depends what happens going forward as far as, you know, there's there's lots of talk, and especially from some of Ghani's subordinates, if American troops leave, that there, there'll be a civil war, which was not a talking point for a while until, in the, in the, you know, I think the last year, it started to be repeated publicly. As kind of a threat, right? You know, the last thing the US wants is a Afghanistan torn apart, like, like the 90s, that is a breeding ground for, for terrorists and insurgent groups.
2: Right. And I was wondering if you could sort of describe what happens. The Taliban's made some territorial gains over the past, over the past year. And I was wondering... If you could describe what happens in those areas that the Taliban moves in, I mean, what sort of policies are implemented and how does the lives of the Afghan civilians who are sort of caught in the middle of this conflict, how does that change once they move into an area?
1: Right. I mean, that, that's, it's always kind of a tough question uh, and a tough thing to kind of pull apart, but you know, the the, the Taliban, they have long been celebrated, I guess, by rural Afghans who who appreciate their immediacy, right? That like land disputes can be settled quickly, neighborly issues, again, fast resolution. I mean, this idea that, you know, you can live your life in that the justice system and, and, you know, the government is right next door versus, you know, the bloated corrupt bureaucracy of the Kabul government if, you know, you were in a rural village in Helmand province that was not controlled by the Taliban, but controlled by, you know, Afghan forces, right? So in those areas, you even have it, you have examples of in government controlled areas that people will just settle land disputes by going into Taliban controlled areas and you know, talking to their their legal system. But as far as, you know, in the, in the last year, I think the, the big two offensives that got a lot of attention were those in Kandahar and, and Helmand. And I think we're not really at a spot where you can kind of say like how, how things change in, in, in those areas, as far as if the Taliban have brought in their governing system. I mean, in Panjali for example, I was, was there a month or so ago when talking to people who live in the Taliban controlled areas, you know, Taliban are very present. They have a curfew. They put in a lot of roadside bombs that, you know, after 5 PM, they are quote unquote activated. So people can't go to their fields or, you know, can't leave their house at night and then during the day they can't go to their fields because they basically laid bombs in those fields to stop any, you know, government advance. But again, if you talk to people from those places, they'll kind of say, well, you know, the Taliban isn't as corrupt as the government. I mean, it's a very, it's a very low bar, right? And I'm trying to walk the line of not saying like, well, the Taliban have their stuff together and the Afghan government doesn't, but it's just these kind of, two sides of the same coin.
2: Right. And I mean there was one one great article that you wrote about white high top sneakers. And there is a there is a point to this article, but you you explained how how the Taliban can be sort of identified by these white high top sneakers that are made in Pakistan, I think, if that's if that's correct. But they're trying to sort of distance themselves from that because they want to be seen as more of a legitimate organization. Would you say that's correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know everyone has in their head like the the training video, the Al Qaeda training videos from the '90s of guys like jumping through flaming hoops. That, I guess that kind of exists in some way, but the Taliban have gone kind of out of their way as far, especially as far as far their unit uniforms are concerned, uh, their training videos to show themselves as a a potent nation state military force, right? Where they're wearing boots and and camouflage uniforms that look like you would you would see in a in a military unit.
2: Right, and and is that an outcome of the February 2020 deal as they negotiate and they're sort of posturing to to be a part of a of a negotiated settlement government.
1: Right, I mean I think that's one of their big, you know, information operations campaign or stratcom, whatever you want to call it, PR is that they want to put themselves up against the western backed Afghan government as this viable alternative that has learned from its governing mistakes of the nineties and is capable of, of running a country. I mean, whether that's true or not yet to be seen, but you know, again, it's, it's definitely an image that they, they want to portray.
2: Yeah, definitely. I I want to move to you. You reported on some, some talks between the U S negotiating directly with the Taliban again because the Afghan government and Taliban are stalled, so what's been the status of those negotiations? And uh, I was wondering if you could talk about how a recent CIA-backed militia incident affected their, their situation.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, so there's been a lot of talk about you know the reduction in violence, right? This these the annexes of of the the 2020 deal and this push to somehow curb the violence ahead of any further peace talks. Now people, experts, analysts, officials, you'll say, you know, what's the sequencing? Do you have the peace talks, some kind of deal from that, or a you know, movement and then and then a reduction of violence, or do you need a reduction of violence to get to the peace talks? So the Americans, I mean, since you know for months after the February 2020 deal, have kind of pushed to redefine or you know build on these annexes, because you know the Americans believe they need to be more stringent and enforced, or at least stringent enough that you know the, the Taliban don't operate in this gray space and there isn't this miscommunication. Because you know there's these biweekly meetings, you know called the mill-to-mill channels or the communication channel between the U.S. and the Taliban that take place in Doha, that kind of has just devolved into you know, one side says you did this, the other side says you did that. And it just kind of gets kind of gets left there. Because, you know, again, from the annexes that I haven't seen, it's just not exactly clear on what both sides should or shouldn't be doing. Or if it does say they just take advantage of it. So these talks have kind of been this, the reduction of violence talks that the Americans have been involved in. And, you know, up until now, is this idea that, you know, if you can get 90 days of reduced violence, kind of like those seven days before the February 2020 deal, you know, maybe, you know, the front lines stabilize and you can kind of set almost like an equilibrium for the conflict, right? That, that you know, those 90 days will turn into 120 days and so on and, and so forth. And the Taliban have been really reticent to kind of agree to these things despite being dangled, you know, maybe the, another prisoner release maybe the sanctions release or sanctions lift because they don't want to be pushed into a ceasefire. Because as soon as you have a stabilized front line, you know, getting your fighters to, to go back to war is a lot harder than than not, right? I mean, it's basically you know, you cool them down and, and heating the Taliban back up It's is difficult. And a lot of frontline commanders, Taliban commanders are worried about that from what I understand.
2: Right, and, and how... I want to touch on that a little bit more. Sort of, how is the Taliban posturing prior to the May one withdrawal deadline? Because, it, from all indications, it seems like the U.S. will probably stay in Afghanistan past May one. How how have the Taliban sort of been sort of positioning themselves around the country?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the two examples that you can kind of point to is as Taliban posture. I mean, they've they've said repeatedly that you know if the U.S. goes past the May first deadline that there will be attacks on U.S.-NATO installations, and that was kind of apparent at the end of March, with where these CIA-backed militia forces allegedly killed dozens of civilians in, in Coast Province, and the Taliban responded by publicly announcing that the Taliban shelled FOB, Chapman, Camp Chapman, whatever you want to call it, the CIA base down there that's well-known, has some U.S. military there for force protection and working with the agency, so that was the first instance. And then, you know, a week or so later, there was an attack on Kandahar airfield that the Taliban also publicly acknowledged. After you know U.S. airstrikes were hitting Taliban fighters in in Argandab, a district to the west of, of Kandahar city proper. So you have these two incidents that the Taliban publicly acknowledged and, and took credit for. You know, in the past there had been some shellings of U.S. bases in southern Afghanistan that had just kind of been denied. There was a car bomb at, at Camp Chapman that no one took took credit for. So definitely past May 1st. I'm sure there'll be more of that if, if American troops are still in, still in Afghanistan. But we'll, uh, we'll see.
0: It's that time of the year. Your
3: vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze,
2: PlushCare Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Right. And, and sort of in the spring season, typically, season increase in fighting, but especially when you take you know, that in conjunction with a May 1 withdrawal deadline. The U.S. recently, I guess, had an intelligence assessment that you reported on that detailed a classified intelligence assessment that detailed what would happen if the U.S. did withdraw by the May 1 deadline. So what did, what did that scenario look like?
1: Right. I mean, I think that that assessment, I think, was reported before the Biden administration took office. But again, it, it basically said, you know, kind of kind of much what you know the intelligence community assessed in the late 80s, you know, that if the Soviets withdraw, you know, the Najibullah government will will fall relatively quickly. You know, in this assessment that said the Taliban will take take over in in two to three years. And to me, I mean it, it just it seemed kind of you know more like a swipe at at the american you know attempt to prop up the afghan security forces right defense forces that in 2 to 3 years you know the, the taliban will will be able to militarily defeat you know this this infrastructure that the us and the and nato and allies took two decades to build and build and train now granted i think you know, the assessment didn't say, you know, how much funding that the government would still get if, it, if there would be airstrikes from outside the country that would still attack the Taliban. So, I mean, there was definitely definitely some unknowns, but I think the intelligence community, the Pentagon are all kind of saying the same thing to the Biden administration to, to not announce a withdrawal.
2: Right. And you're in Kabul right now. So I was wondering if you could just sort of describe for us the atmosphere in Kabul. I mean, I've seen reporting in recent days that there's been an increase in violence just just around the city.
1: Right. I mean, I think you know, since since the deal, there's just this this unknown, right? I mean, there's just no idea what the future looks like, and I think that was the most apparent around the presidential elections and the inauguration, right, where it was this, you know, if if Trump was going to win, which meant you know the fate was the fate was sealed that the Americans would withdraw and and the Afghans, especially those in, in Kabul, would be dealing with a much different future. And now it's kind of the same. It's kind of just, just waiting for this review announcement that could come this week, could come next week, could come on, on May 1st. But, I mean, at that level of uncertainty has been a huge part of Afghan culture for, for the last 40 years. And, yeah, it's 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 tough. And, I mean, with the targeted assassinations in, in Kabul and other cities... It's just, a, it's a, it's a lot of pressure, weighs on a lot of people.
2: Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, what's it like just sort of moving to more of your own personal experience? What's it like reporting from Kabul in this time?
1: You know, it's just taking into account the security situation. I mean, it, what I was just thinking about is, you know, 13 years ago, I was a Lance Corporal in the Marines and we were getting ready to go on this operation in Helmand province. And we had no idea, you know, when it was going to be what exactly our, our role was. So we're just kind of, it was just hurry up and wait. And now here we are mid April, 2021. And I'm trying to figure out when this peace conference in Turkey is going to happen. How am I going to get there? Is the Taliban going to go? So it's kind of just a weird comparison of perspectives, I guess.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, do you find that people are more hesitant to talk to you than they have been sort of in the past as we approach this May 1st deadline, or is there really no difference there?
1: No, I mean, it's, I think there's being an American, and again, I wasn't a reporter, and I've only been here for a short amount of time as a reporter, well, in and out since 2015. But, you know, I, th- I think when you kind of announce yourself and as American, there's there's some contempt there. I mean, I think there's, a, especially in Kabul, this the idea that we've hung them out to dry, we've emboldened the Taliban, and then kind of gave them these prisoners that you know they claim many return to the battlefield. So yeah, it's just it's uh yeah, definitely perspective on the United States is, is certainly soured. It's hard hard to push back on that.
2: Yeah. You know, do you have any um sort of not that you're in the predicting market, but do you have any anticipation for for what what these talks in Istanbul will look like?
1: No, I think I think you know, any kind of progress will just look like some kind of agreement on on you know what the future talks will look like, what what the topics that need to be discussed and decided upon when it comes to, you know, future government or future political sentiment or or ceasefire, right? It's just this idea of what to approach and how to approach it from the negotiators from both sides. I think that would be that would be progress. I don't see any any major I don't see both sides walking away, having figured everything out. Right, it's just more of you know pushing this closer and closer to a political settlement. So I think that would be a big takeaway.
2: Thank you uh, so much for joining me. I want to start with uh, President Biden's announcement on Wednesday. He announced a final withdrawal date of September 11th, 2021. You previously have advocated for the U.S. to. Uh, Hold the Taliban to its commitments in the Doha deal, which was made in February 2021, and then assess the withdrawal date from there. So I just really was wondering what your initial reaction to the announcement was.
0: Sure. I was struck by uh, the announcement. I mean, I think there is for September 11th, I think President Biden wanted to sort of end the war with some symbolism, having 20 years after the 9/11 attacks be sort of the the bookend to the war or at least the US involvement in the war and and so I, he chose that date presumably for that reason but what was striking to me was in the withdrawal announcement the fact that it was entirely unconditional even even president trump you know who certainly wanted to end america's endless wars as he constantly said signed a, a peace deal with the taliban in doha last year that made us withdrawal conditional on a number of things you know on even on sort of the kind of barest reading of the doha deal on counter terrorism commitments and by some readings of that deal on other things as well on progress in the intra afghan peace process on a reduction in violence by the taliban so you know there were certainly conditions conditions that a lot of us at that point deemed were not enough and the fact is that this withdrawal announcement basically disconnects from any of those commitments it does none of that and that to me is really striking coming as it does from president biden and coming as it does on the heels of you know now nearly 3 months of a review process that this administration has undertaken in which they haven't said a lot but they have talked about Preserving the gains made in women's rights and human rights and democracy over the last twenty years, and so they've given they've given indications that they would respect sort of the conditionality of um, uh, at least the Doha deal and perhaps even impose more conditions. But here, all of that is being rolled away.
2: Right, right, and I, I you know, you touched on the intra Afghan negotiations. And you've been following them very closely. So I was just wondering, how do you think this announcement will impact the ongoing negotiations between the Afghan government and the Taliban?
0: Unfortunately, I I would argue that this announcement and the fact that there is an exact date by which withdrawal will be complete, right? Withdrawal will begin on May 1st, President Biden said, and will be complete by, by September 11th. So the fact that there's an exact date and the fact that there is no conditionality to that withdrawal essentially means that there is no incentive for the Taliban to compromise on anything or to even come back to the the, the table, frankly. And so I would say that the peace process is effectively over. And, and for that reason, I, you know, for those in Afghanistan who wanted some kind of peace agreement, right? And and those of us who thought that that would be the best uh, way to exit this war. You know, it's a tough day, uh, a tough week with this announcement. I think I would say the Taliban obviously had very little incentive to compromise earlier. And I think, you know, to be fair, the Ghani government also wasn't engaging in a lot of compromise. You know, both were kind of trying to run down the clock and see what happens. You know, the Ghani government wanted you know, an extension. The Taliban essentially wanted the US to leave without making any compromises. But I'd argue that now the Taliban has zero incentive. And and we'll wait to see what, what happens. They've given, you know, statements saying basically that they won't engage in peace talks until all US forces withdraw. And and we'll see, you know, what their reaction is more so in the coming days. But I would expect to see, you know, zero movement on this.
2: It, right, that's that's interesting. I was, I was talking with Thomas Gibbons Neff, who wrote an article last April on the U.S. using the CIA presence in Afghanistan as a leverage point in negotiations, and something that I found sort of interesting about President Biden's announcement. And there was a background call that a senior administration official did with some reporters, where they basically said that the U.S. will sort of keep its intelligence or try to keep some semblance of an intelligence apparatus there to to ensure that another attack is not launched in the United States from from Afghan soil and I was wondering do you think that that you know the intelligence presence at all could still be a, a bargaining chip for the for the negotiations
0: I don't think that the intelligence presence there can be used as leverage what i would say is that troops could be used as leverage only because we could predicate our withdrawal on uh, some kind of progress in peace negotiations or any other conditions that we want it fulfilled. But I think the intelligence presence will be useful, even if it's limited, in being able to uh, make sure that our counterterrorism sort of purposes are, are met, right? So one of the criticisms of withdrawal without knowing what happens next uh, in terms of the Taliban gaining ascendance uh, in Afghanistan or a civil war, et cetera, is that, you know, you cede space essentially to terrorist groups, uh, you know, the Taliban Al-Qaeda, which may want to attack the US. And so that intelligence presence is useful. It will be limited. And I think President Biden has also talked about and, and the senior administration official in 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 that call also spoke about repositioning our presence in the region so that, you know, basically we can sort of keep an eye on this. I mean, I'd be curious in the coming days and weeks to see exactly what that looks like, but by definition, an offshore presence is not going to be as effective as, as you know what we have right now. So, th- the fact is that some of this, you know, will be diluted. Some of our abilities will be diluted, and I think there is a recognition of that across the administration. I think the you know the decision basically says the threat that we face, you know, we can deal with with that diluted presence. And we don't need to keep boots on the ground for counterterrorism purposes.
2: Right. And and you touched on this a little bit earlier, but in, in speaking about the gains made by women and girls in Afghanistan over the past 20 years, the senior administration officials said that the U.S. would use diplomatic, humanitarian, and economic tools to protect those gains I was wondering, do you think that's a viable strategy given the the fundamental differences between the current Afghan government and the Taliban?
0: Right, you know that's I, I I do worry about that quite a bit, and and President Biden, to be fair, has been clear on this since the campaign trail last February when he was a candidate for president. He uh, said on Face the Nation that he basically bore zero responsibility for the outcome if the Taliban ends up back in control and women end up losing their rights. So he's been consistent on this. He basically has said that we don't need to maintain troops in order to guarantee rights, or we don't need to send troops somewhere in order to guarantee women's rights. But I think the difference here is that we already had an existing and ongoing presence, and that presence could have been used to reach a peace deal where we would know what the conclusion would be for those rights. I mean, I I will say that even with some kind of power sharing agreement between the Taliban and Kabul, some of those rights would have to be rolled back, probably as the Taliban asserted its ideology and its beliefs. But, you know, at least we would know what the outcome is. Right now, my fear is, and others have warned of this as well, that Afghanistan enters into some kind of state of protracted violence and civil war where, you know, the, the fight goes to its cities, which is where uh, women have seen the most gains uh, in, and, and most progress in terms of rights, in terms of girls going to school, women going to work, and there they first face a security threat, and then second, of course, if the Taliban is able to gain some ascendance there, they see all of the progress of the last 20 years being washed away. And I think that is a real threat and a potentially great cost. I think that that will be of great cost to the US, which is something that is being disregarded or at least pushed aside or pushed down the horizon in this decision. I think to me, this decision seems like it's made from kind of a short and medium-term perspective, but in the long-term, there you know, there is a real risk that outcomes could go awry, because of it. And that's not being considered.
2: Right, right. And I definitely, I, I want to get into that. You you co-authored an article that sort of walked through why staying in Afghanistan was, in your words, the least bad choice for the Biden administration. And you walked through some scenarios of what would happen in Afghanistan post-U.S. US withdrawal and some really horrifying scenarios, including ethnic cleansing. I was wondering if you could walk, take us through some of those scenarios.
0: Sure. I think, you know, the first point um, that my my co-author Michael Hanlon and I make in that piece is that if, you know, our assistance to uh, Afghan government forces continues they will have the wherewithal to maintain the fight with the taliban and the taliban certainly will so they will keep on fighting so those who imagine some sort of quick taliban victory over the kabul government and some kind of smooth transition to the taliban being in power i think are are mistaken so the war will continue and we have all sort of would say that it is likely to move into afghanistan cities as well and given that you know, there there could be some uh, scenarios in which we might see some form of ethnic cleansing where because the Taliban are Pashtun, the other ethnic groups would want to push them out as they're fighting against the Taliban. And that could, again, be a recipe for ethnic cleansing. And what you would you might see, there is some kind of partition of, of the country that occurs, you know, one part of the, you know, current Afghan state that becomes a part that is, again, friendly to the US, and then one part that falls into Taliban control. And of course, then that part would be of threat to us. I think another implication is that this would sort of increase the likelihood that a huge amount of refugees might flow into into Pakistan, which neighbors Afghanistan. Of course, we've seen this before, right? We've seen this all play out before in terms of what happened in the 1990s, where after the Soviet withdrawal, huge amounts of refugees uh, fled into into Pakistan, really changing sort of the makeup of Pakistan's Northwest, where, you know, there was a huge degree of sort of gun culture that came out, uh, increased militancy later. And, you know, some might argue that, you know, Pakistan as it did then, would have incentive to prop up a Taliban regime in Afghanistan. But Pakistan has sort of made it clear that it is not the Pakistan of the 1990s. And there are a number of reasons for that. And one is the fact that it has had its own experience with militancy and terrorism over the last 20 years. And uh, so it is not in its interest, and it is said as much, to have uh, you know, a Taliban emirate on its Western border. So Pakistan is not going to be the power that props up the Taliban necessarily. So, so what we would see then is some kind of, you know, a huge refugee flows into, into Pakistan and that could have massive repercussions in and of itself. You know, Pakistan is uh, the fifth largest country in the world, it is a uh, nuclear power and uh, a destabilization of Pakistan has ripple effects and more throughout the region.
2: Right, and and so I want to jump in here. Uh, this is a good segue to my next question, which is, just how do you think this announcement has been received in Pakistan, and could the U.S. withdrawal give Pakistan sort of a larger role in Afghanistan and the broader negotiations that are going going on right now?
0: So, let, let me start with you know Pakistan's role throughout the Afghan peace process. You know, Pakistan has played a constructive role here. It brought the Taliban to the table, um, it released Mullah Baradar, uh, and and that's how the talks began. Pakistan really has been sort of the other than the U.S. and you know than the Taliban, sort of the the, the third party here in this peace process, and it's con- sort of the centrality of its role um, has remained. The Biden administration is talking about and talking to other countries as well. You know, it's talked about bringing India in, um, you know, Russia is involved. There was a, a conference in Moscow last month. But but I, I think Pakistan's central re- role remains intact. In the power sharing agreement that the Biden administration was trying to broker between the Taliban and Kabul with the leak letter that came out from Secretary Blinken to President Khani last month. You know that was something that Pakistan said it supported uh, and it said it was on board, and now it's saying it's on board with a uh, U.S. withdrawal as well. It had said that it would prefer for there not to be a precipitous withdrawal, but clearly it it, it doesn't consider this or sort of withdrawal this. Uh, withdrawal that takes about four months as a precipitous one. I mean, I would argue that this decision essentially by the Biden administration has been made for logistical purposes, right, to stagger the withdrawal so that it's done responsibly. And that's what responsible withdrawal means for for the Biden administration. And so this, you know, at least overtly seems to satisfy Pakistan. Uh, Secretary Blinken had a phone call with the Chief of Army Staff, General Bajwa. And um, today, you know, General Bajwa has said that, that, he is on board. President Biden, in his speech yesterday, said, you know, he'll call on regional countries to do more to support Afghanistan. And then he sort of stressed, especially Pakistan. Then he mentioned some other countries, including India and Iran. And so the question is, what does do more mean uh, for, for Pakistan? And I'm sure Pakistanis are curious about this because they've begrudged in many ways the U.S. demand to do more. They say, you know, they've essentially used all their leverage to bring the, the Taliban to the table. And they've said they have limited leverage over the Taliban in terms of what they can ask it to do. And in, in that, they're not wrong because I think many of us assume and and many in Washington assume that Pakistan has, you know, exercises a great degree or maybe full control over the Taliban, but that's not the case. The, the, the whole group, has evolved away from Pakistani control since the 1990s. But in particular, I think the Taliban's field commanders, and this is not stressed enough, uh, really don't feel uh, much obligation in any way to Pakistan. And so Pakistan's role, uh, Pakistan's leverage uh, might be limited. Over there. And so, you know, again, the Biden administration, I think, is asking Pakistan to help along with the peace process. And Pakistan is saying it'll do all that it can. It wants to retain its sort of privileged position as, you know, the party of importance as it is uh, in Afghanistan. But it also walks this fine line where it says, you know, there are real limits to what it can do.
2: So I want to switch gears a little bit and and talk about the withdrawal announcement in light of U.S. public opinion. You've done some great research on uh, the way that the war in Afghanistan is perceived in the United States. And I'm curious, sort of when you look back, it's it's been, the war has been presided over by two Republican presidents and two Democratic presidents now at this point. I was wondering if you could sort of just place Biden's announcement in the context of, of U.S. perception of the war in Afghanistan.
0: Sure. Public opinion is often invoked when talking about the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, basically calling to a war-weary public, saying the public is is wary of these forever wars and these endless wars, and it wants the troops to come home. But I think public opinion is certainly overstated here. There are very vocal groups, I you know, both In Congress, um, there are veterans groups that are vocal about uh, wanting a withdrawal. But when you look at the evidence by and large, especially over the last few years, you know, when this issue has sort of acquired this name of the endless war, forever war of America's longest war, you know, I think something the Trump administration really pushed this kind of terminology. If you look at the, the polling data across a number of polls, you see a, an ambivalent public, you know, a public where uh, a significant uh, proportion of respondents actually don't even respond to the question of whether they prefer troop withdrawals or not, or what their views are. So you'll have about 20% of people or more not responding to these questions which is a high percentage and then you'll essentially have a divided opinion on withdrawal basically half saying that they prefer us forces to withdraw quickly and the other saying that they don't and this is across a number of different polls if you then look at veterans groups who may presumably have more of an opinion you do see that you know the ambivalence goes away a little bit so you know more of them respond but again even they are divided on, on troop withdrawals. So the, the takeaway from that then is that we can't actually call on public opinion as the justification for withdrawal. I think we can't really say that this was a political decision that Biden had to make to respond to public opinion or uh, to cater to his his base. I think uh, there is is no evidence that that is necessarily the case. And so it really appears that this is a decision that the president has made because of his own personal convictions. I mean, I think he has talked, I mean, since he was vice president, but certainly on the campaign trail about ending this endless war. And as he mentioned yesterday, he wanted to be the president who who did so. You know, he does not want to hand this war over to the next president. And, And so that is really what has come into play here.
2: Great. I think, that's, uh, I think that's a great great place to leave it. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to talk with me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. And your audio engineer is Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.